The periodical podcast recognises Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first people of this place known as Australia. We recognise the Yagara and Turbal people as the traditional custodians of the land where we record today and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. We also acknowledge that the themes covered in the periodical podcast, including menstrual and maternal health outcomes, disproportionately impact First Nations women. This podcast is brought to you by Hey Al Productions. Hello, I'm Michelle. I'm the co-host of The Periodical Podcast. I am a women's health practitioner and the owner of Over Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine, a clinic based in Camp Hill, Brisbane, where we support people through every season of life with acupuncture, cupping and Chinese herbal medicine. Now, although I'm a registered acupuncturist and Chinese herbal medicine practitioner, in this podcast, I am simply your big sis for periods and the information I share is not intended nor should be received as medical advice. So I always recommend working with a GP as the first point of call for the themes that we cover in this podcast. And I'm Alex, the co-host and producer of The Periodical Pod. I'm the owner of Hey Our Productions, a full service podcast company based here in Brisbane. I'm also a writer and a mum of three kids who I'm sure you will hear me mention quite a bit. There's Oscar, who's nine, Magnolia, who is six, and Sol, who is two. So Michelle and I have partnered to make a women's health podcast that's packed full of the topics we should have all been taught but never were. We're your big sisters for periods and we're diving deep into the until now taboo topics such as periods, hormones, mental health, fertility, sex, menopause, and the entire spectrum of women's health. In this podcast, there's no such thing as too much information. We're not holding anything back and we're covering the topics you might be too embarrassed to talk about. Expect epic guests, including experts in women's health and people with lived experience. We want to empower women with education and create an opportunity to share real life stories that will make you laugh and cry. So on today's episode, we're going to be discussing all about ovulation. So we love to start the pod. If you listened last week, you'll know uh, with a little bit of period chat. So Michelle, what day of your cycle are you at at the moment? So I'm cycle day nine. This is my inner spring. And because I'm getting closer to my day of ovulation, I've started to notice an increase in my energy levels as well as an increase in my cervical mucus, which is a topic that we are absolutely going to go into more detail about in today's episode. Yes. Al, what cycle day are you? So I've been giving this more thought (laughs) since last week. Uh, As I said, I had the marina put in last year and since then I just have no idea where I'm at or what's happening. But just having a think about some of the things we discussed last week, uh, noticing the signs, I would say that I'm very close to ovulation. I've had like a bit of cramping in my right ovary. I don't know if these are the correct symptoms, but we'll soon find out. Um, Yeah, a bit of cramping in my right ovary and just a bit bloated, feeling a bit more like fun and frisky. Love that. I think that that might be it, but I don't know, but I'm sure I'm going to learn today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the biggest takeaway is just becoming more in tune with those signs and symptoms and noticing things like how your mood changes throughout the cycle and how your energy levels change and things like that. So I think that's awesome. After one episode, you're already tuning in. So Yeah, literally like something would happen. I'm like, oh, I should take note of 
this. And yes, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so I was excited to have something to share. <laughs> so as Michelle has said, this whole episode is about ovulation. So Michelle, uh, let's just start at the beginning. Tell us what is happening when we ovulate. So I really want to reiterate that ovulation is the main event of the menstrual cycle. And I think because our period is so tangible mm-hmm. and it's just there and it's so visible, we often think that our period is the main event of the menstrual cycle. Um, but really ovulation has such a fundamental role in the female reproductive system that I really want to emphasize that we should be focusing on when we ovulate because when we ovulate will determine when we have a period. Yeah. And so again, I'm talking about a sort of like normal menstrual cycle. And I don't want to say normal in the lens that if you are on hormonal birth control that you're abnormal. It's not that at all. It's just that some types of hormonal birth control will affect whether or not your body is actually ovulating. So, you know, you've mentioned you're on the marina. Most people or many people will continue to ovulate while they're on the marina. Whereas some types of the pill, they will shut down ovulation. So when I say a normal menstrual cycle, I'm just meaning a menstrual cycle that hasn't been influenced by external hormones or external drugs that you might be taking. But really what's happening when we ovulate is we're developing the follicles that will one or maybe two will eventually go on to be released at ovulation. So We call them follicles and inside of the follicle is the egg that we're going to go on to release at ovulation. So at the start of the menstrual cycle, cycle day one, which we learned last week, is our full flow of menstruation. So you start your period, you've got full flow and your hormones are going to go down to their baseline level. And when we're coming sort of out of the period, your brain, which is where we produce FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone, it starts to send FSH down to the ovaries. And in response to that, we start to get this beautiful production of follicles and the number of follicles that are being created will change for everybody. But essentially what happens, and we call it folliculogenesis, there's ultimately going to be one dominant follicle. So I kind of explain it to my patients like Australian Idol or something. Like there's (laughs) all these contestants and so there's all these beautiful follicles vying to be the dominant follicle. Yeah. But eventually there's going to be one clear winner that goes on to become the dominant follicle. And so in response to the FSH, your body starts to produce estrogen Mm -hmm. and then that estrogen will increase as that follicle increases. And eventually that dominant follicle, which is housing the beautiful egg, will get so big that a message then goes back up to the brain. So there's a feedback loop. So the brain's always communicating down to your ovaries. And part of that feedback loop is your estrogen's increasing and then a message is essentially sent. And the brain's like, cool. (laughs) (laughs) We're ready. Yeah, we're ready. And then essentially ovulation will occur. And that ovulation occurs after a surge in LH. We don't really need to get into the nitty gritty of how all of those hormones interplay and the way that they surge, et cetera. Um, But essentially ovulation will typically occur about 
12 hours after an LH peak. And then what happens is the follicle secretes and the egg is released. Wow. My God, it's so intense. That's like the elevator pitch of of ovulation. (laughs) And I also really just want to preface like when I'm talking, because this podcast is for just everyday people. It's not for medical professionals. So sometimes when I talk like quite colloquially or um, casually, you know, I know that that's not how it happens. Like the brain isn't like cool girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's not happening, but I I just try to make things, you know, easily understood. So I know that I'm not speaking perfectly scientifically. (laughs) No, this is like, I think you're definitely keeping people like me in mind. I've mentioned to you before, Kev, my husband's a scientist. Mm. And when he explains things to me, who is not a scientist (laughs) yeah and he'll like use really technical terms I'm like I cannot even concentrate on what you're saying because I'm too busy trying to work out what that word may have meant yes exactly so this is what we need (laughs) good well I hope that all of that was easy enough to sort of follow along with and so ovulation is realistic we call it a 24-hour event Mm -hmm. but the eggs released and if you're trying to fall pregnant hopefully there's sperm there waiting for the egg Um, If you're not trying to fall pregnant, (laughs) hopefully there's no sperm. (laughs) And then after ovulation, we have that corpus luteum. So that follicle, the dominant follicle that was working so hard to grow and develop and nourish that egg. It's really the MVP of the menstrual cycle because once the egg is released that follicle turns into something called the corpus luteum. The corpus luteum starts to produce progesterone Mm -hmm. and the progesterone has a really, really, really important role to play for a variety of reasons, one of which is sort of like the receptivity of the endometrium for the embryo. So again, if you are trying to make a baby, the role of progesterone is really important in how that embryo will potentially implant into the endometrium, which is the inside of the uterus or the womb. And progesterone has a lot of other benefits for the female body, but that's just one of them. And then that corpus luteum continues to produce progesterone until the placenta takes over yeah so again don't quote me on this it's about six to nine weeks I think from the top of my head yeah that the corpus luteum continues to produce progesterone so like I said MVP of the menstrual cycle like <laughs> it not only houses the egg yeah it then goes on to become a gland yeah. like a hormone producing gland that's, that's wild <laughs> I know it's like when I learn about the menstrual cycle I just think like how amazing is the human body that's oh, incredible yeah. yeah so that's kind of like in a nutshell what's happening when we ovulate we've got the menstruation when hormones are down to their baseline level and then when you're coming out of menstruation that's when your FSH the follicle stimulating hormone is being sent down to the ovaries. Your ovaries respond with that beautiful recruitment of follicles. Eventually there will be a dominant follicle. That dominant follicle continues to grow and grow and grow via estrogen. And then once that sort of peak occurs, ovulation happens, the egg is released And then we've got that beautiful production of progesterone from the corpus luteum. So there's obviously lots of other things that go on behind, you know, all of that. But that's kind of like the high level what's happening when we ovulate. Wow. That's so incredible. (laughs) I guess like the next obvious question is, well, how do we know when we ovulate? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's my big question. Like what are the symptoms? What's happening? Yeah. So if you 
think of like a textbook menstrual cycle. We'll read in the textbooks that a textbook menstrual cycle is 28 days. Mm -hmm. They usually say that your luteal phase is always 14 days and that it's really consistent 14 days for most people. And so then they very, in my opinion, rudimentally say, well, 28 minus 14 means that ovulation must occur at day 14. In my world, a normal menstrual cycle is anywhere from 25 to 30 days. And typically what I see in clinic is that my patients that are tracking ovulation, their luteal phase could be anywhere from sort of 10 to 12, 13 days. I rarely see people with a 14 day luteal phase. Is that because the people that have a 14 day luteal phase don't need to come to my clinic? Yeah, maybe. Potentially. So I always have that at the back of my head where I'm seeing people that are trying to fall pregnant typically in my clinic or people that are having symptoms associated with the menstrual cycle. So I probably see a skewed um, representation of the population. But I guess I say all of that to emphasize that you don't know for sure how long your luteal phase is. It can fluctuate and there can be different things going on with that. But understanding when you ovulate is going to be really important, not only if you're trying to conceive. Obviously, if you're trying to conceive, you want to time your sex for that window. But if you're not trying to conceive, you'd obviously want to avoid sex during that time. But also, even if you're not trying to conceive, ovulation is a really important physiological event. And so if it's not occurring, we need to ask ourselves why it might not be occurring. And then if you are trying to conceive, I just always remind my patients of the basics of making a baby, which is we need ovulation to be occurring. We need good, healthy sperm to be there waiting for the egg. Things need to get from A to B. So there needs to be, you know, no blockages and a nice clear passage through the fallopian tubes. And then that womb environment needs to be really beautiful and fertile and a nice environment for the embryo to implant into. Yeah. And so when I explain to my patients about the importance of ovulation occurring, I always remind them of a patient of mine who ovulated on day 40 Oh wow! and went on to have a beautiful pregnancy and, really? and baby. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, I'm the same. I'm a type A personality. We can type A <laughs> our menstrual cycle and yeah. really think like we need to get it perfect. And I just want to like, when I, when I talk about like the perfect period and the perfect this, like yeah. everyone's going to be so unique and different. And that's why I really emphasize like individualized healthcare. So some of the ways to know if ovulation is happening for you is you can track symptoms in the body. So some people notice that they're more energetic at ovulation, which you yeah, like, referred yeah, to. Yeah. Yeah. And then some people will notice that their boobs actually get a little bit bigger, that their skin gets clearer. And these are all really like estrogenic qualities. So as the estrogen is increasing, we notice that. So like Marilyn Monroe is like often (laughs) described as like a very estrogenic woman um, because she had like the big voluptuous boobs and that kind of um, appearance. That's like the role of estrogen and it makes us more outgoing and social and things like that. I love that. Yeah. And the other thing that estrogen does is it influences your cervical mucus. Mm -hmm. And so in the lead up to ovulation, a lot of people will notice that their cervical mucus changes. I describe it as becoming um, a little slipperier when you wipe. So some people just go to the toilet and when they wipe, they realize that it's a little bit slipperier than normal. Yeah. Other people will notice quite abundant levels of cervical mucus on their undies. Yep. Some people notice it in the shower. And again, coming back to this idea of like type A yeah. personalities, 
we can sometimes like see on Instagram that the fertile mucus is like clear, stretchy, the, egg white. Yes. And, yeah. And we're both looking like crabs. Yeah. Here, by the way, holding the, <laughs> but it doesn't always have to be like that. Like, yeah. yes, that is like the typical sort of fertile mucus, but position of the cervix can influence how your cervical mucus actually comes out. Oh, right. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. So yeah. some people that are really, you know, like bang on about cervical mucus will check internally what their mucus is. Yeah. But for other people, they just notice that it's, you know, a little bit slipperier down there. And that's, again, like a sign of like estrogen increasing in preparation for ovulation. Yeah. Wow. And then I teach people how to chart their temperature. Yes. That was what I was going to ask. Yeah. So I explained that the corpus luteum produces progesterone. Progesterone increases your basal body temperature. Right. Yeah. So the first half of your cycle, which is where estrogen is the dominant hormone, your temperatures will be in a lower range than after ovulation because we only produce progesterone at sustained high levels as a result of ovulation. Yeah. So therefore having increased temperatures that are sustained Mm -hmm indicates that ovulation has occurred. Right. Yeah. So this actually came from Melbourne. It's called the Billings method. They were, I think, scientists and they came up with this method of actually tracking your temperature. So that's really interesting. And is it a big enough change to notice that your temperature's changed or it's not? Like, can you feel, like, you know, sometimes you get like overwhelmed and hot and lasted for no reason you just feel really warm yeah like, would it be anything like that or you just can't really tell because it's such a small change a great question I think everyone's going to have different experiences of it yeah for me personally I don't notice it my temperature I don't notice that I'm like physically hotter during my luteal phase yeah but just anecdotally in my clinical practice, a lot of people do feel quite hot in the lead up to their period. Yeah. And from a Chinese medicine perspective, which is my lens of the world, the lead up to the period can be where heat manifests for different reasons from Chinese medicine. So one of the reasons why people might feel constipated in the lead up to their period is because of heat from a TCM perspective. Really? But we look at the world a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, some people do say that they feel hotter. Yeah. I don't actually feel that myself. So I guess everybody's different. Yeah. yeah. But it's a significant enough increase that on a chart, like when you're charting your temperatures, you can see like it's very black and white that yeah. your temperature's increased. And then obviously if you have a fever, yeah. it'll increase your temperature. Yeah. yeah. Um, alcohol can increase your temperature so that's why we're looking for sustained levels um sustained increases because you know if you have a couple of drinks your temperature will spike but then it'll go down the next day yeah whereas once you've ovulated those temperatures will stay increased for like hopefully 11 to 14 days wow Yeah. yeah And then for my patients that are charting their temperatures, once their temperatures have gone to like 16, 17 days, that's when I'm like, you're probably pregnant. You can do a test. That's so exciting. Yeah. And can you take your temperature with, like you you can't use a normal thermometer for that. Yeah, you you can. You can. Okay. Because you know on the market, there's all those special pregnancy, like the ovulation thermometers. Is that just a marketing thing? Yeah. So my patients just go to the local chemist. They pick up an ovulation thermometer for about 10 bucks. Right. Um, It just has to go to two decimal places. Yeah. Okay. So one is spot on. Yes. So it has to go to two decimal places because the increase is quite nuanced. Um, Yeah. So there's so many different ones on the market. Natural 
cycles is probably like the newest in the Australian market. Yeah. It's FDA approved in America. And so that is more expensive. Yeah. And I think it's either an annual fee or it's like a monthly subscription to their app. Yeah. So that's like a little bit more expensive, but I just teach my patients how to log their temperatures in a really basic free app yeah. and then how to read it themselves. Yeah. Wow. Um, obviously we have this podcast and the whole mission of the podcast is to educate women on their bodies. Yeah. And so for me, when we're just using an app to log our temperatures and then the app tell us the information, yeah. that's not empowering to me. No. It's like, but learning how to read your own chart and yeah. understand why your temperatures might be increasing or decreasing, I find that to be really empowering. So yeah. that's how I like to do it in my clinic. Yeah, that makes so much sense because you're learning as you go. And yes. Yeah. yeah so cool. I always tell my patients, my goal is for you to come in here and you tell me what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Other ways to know if ovulation is happening from like more of a Western medicine lens is, and this is particularly true if you are working with a fertility specialist and you have access to more investigations, is you can do blood tests throughout the month. So testing different hormones at different times of the cycle will indicate whether ovulation has occurred or is about to occur and things like that. So estrogen will be increasing in the follicular phase and lead up to ovulation. So oftentimes I'll be testing that and progesterone because we've already explained that progesterone is only produced if ovulation has occurred. Progesterone can be tested via a blood test but it needs to be tested during the peak phase of the luteal phase. Right. But it has traditionally been called the day 21 Yes, I've test. had this before. Yeah. 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 So what was your experience? Did you just chuff off on day 21 to get your yeah, progesterone? Yeah, well, I mean, whatever I thought was day 21, which now that we've mm. spoken, I've realized probably wasn't day 21. And I think that the results that I got wasn't what I was looking for at the time. time. Was it yeah. disheartening? Yeah. But yeah, so I just went off at 21 whatever I was counting was 21 probably yeah. from the first day of spotting yes. <laughs> which yeah. I now know uh, wasn't correct either yeah that's all I went up to Sullivan Nicolades and and got your blood, got tested. My blood tested yeah so, yeah and like that's something that really breaks my heart I've had patients come in and burst into tears and tell me I'm not ovulating yeah And when I look at their chart and then I see that they've had that progesterone tested on day 21, if you ovulate it on day 22, that test has totally skipped it. Yeah. So I prefer to call it a seven days post ovulation progesterone test. So you want to test your progesterone seven days after you've ovulated. Yeah. So that could be through your temperatures, which is, you know, what I do in my clinical practice where my patients are doing their temperatures. We can say, cool, you ovulated on whatever day 20, let's go get your progesterone tested on day 27. But if they're not temperature charting, then we try to pinpoint it as close as we can. Um, But ideally they're charting their temperatures so we can be really specific. But yeah, that progesterone needs to be tested during the peak phase of the luteal phase. So again, I always come back to my patient who ovulated on day 40. If she did her day 21 progesterone test, she would have been like, I'm not ovulating. Yeah, like like all of the things that we know that we tell ourselves. Whereas realistically for her, if her progesterone had been tested on day 47, we probably would have seen beautiful high levels because she went on to have her beautiful baby. Yeah. So that's a really important point that I want to drive home that if you are having your hormones tested, then being really specific about when in your menstrual cycle you're having your hormones tested is really, really important. Yeah. On that, just going back to that 21 day 
test that should be seven days after ovulation, as you said. I just am thinking about my journey to trying to conceive, especially with Magnolia. With Sol, it was three years, but uh, because of all the heartbreak with trying for Magnolia, I didn't want to go through all of that again, trying for Sol, because I wanted to try and you know, stay present for Oscar and Magnolia, like my elder two. So I wasn't as into, I didn't try any fertility intervention or anything like that. Wish I had known you. <laughs> but yeah, when I was trying for Magnolia and I was doing all these, the 21 day test and mm. things like that, I just wish that, and I'm so glad that we're doing this podcast for women like me that will be able to just understand everything a little bit more. Because if you don't know, like if your doctor is just telling you, or if you've read that it's the 21 day test, then obviously that's just what you're going to go and do. But if you've got this education and you understand, like you said, it's so important to know the day you ovulate, obviously. Yeah. Whereas when, I mean, when I've been trying, it was all about what day you got your period. And like we said, I was, you know, I assumed that was the first day of spotting. And Mm. so it's so hard to track if you don't have this amount of education. Yeah. So I feel like all of that, it's incredible. And look like, Thank you so much for sharing that. But this won't be the thing that makes or breaks someone's fertility journey necessarily. Yeah. But I describe it to the people that I work with as we're just collecting data. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm an ex-marketer. For me, I'm like the more data you have, the more you can pick up patterns and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so, yeah, like you said, just having that understanding of what why you're actually testing the progesterone and what that means is really important yeah because if you knew why you were getting the progesterone tested like the point of it Mm. then you would probably understand more when to have it done exactly it's not even because it's no one's fault it's not the doctor's fault that they're telling you 21 days no but if you don't know what that actual 21 days is meant to be in your cycle Mm. then you yeah you don't know yeah exactly and there's I I want to be really sensitive and tender when we're talking about fertility challenges because I know from the people that I work with how complex they can get but for some people that come to my clinic when we pinpoint their ovulation, they've actually just been missing their fertile window. Yeah. Um, so timing sex has been done inappropriately, not for anyone's fault. Like yeah. no one's out here trying to yeah. like trick people into thinking they're ovulating at different times. We just don't know what we don't know. Oh, absolutely. And so by knowing when you're ovulating, having your hormones tested at the right times during your cycle, this is all going to set you up just to understand things like your fertile window with a greater sense of intimacy, which I think is only a good thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you've been speaking a bit about estrogen and that being the first part of the cycle before ovulation. And I just love hearing you talk about estrogen because you refer to it as the Beyonce hormone, yes. which is one of my favorite things <laughs> to hear you talk about. So uh, tell us more. Yeah. So I do explain estrogen as like the Beyonce hormone because I think people can relate to that imagery. And typically in that first half of the cycle, when we're in our follicular phase and estrogen is increasing, we tend to be a little bit more energetic, outgoing, vivacious. Our libido is usually higher at this time. And so it's this really like outward, exciting, vibrant energy. And estrogen is kind of known in the body as like a proliferator or like a 
hormone of growth. Yeah. And so like all good things, if they're left to just like burn out of control, they can manifest in negative ways as well. So I'm just mindful too that when I say like oh you people usually feel really great at ovulation ovulation can actually be a time where people feel really anxious or feel really unsettled or ungrounded as well and so I'm talking about typical variations of the hormones in the body Um, but people that are listening to this might have different experiences and so I just want to take a moment to recognize that But essentially the estrogen that we're talking about in terms of the menstrual cycle is mostly produced by the ovaries, but there are other estrogens throughout the body. And so in addition to estrogen's role in the menstrual cycle, estrogen also affects other parts of the body like our heart and blood vessels and bones and our brain and our pelvic muscles, like our urinary tract, like there's, it's going to influence the whole body. And that's also one of the reasons why, and there's a really amazing book by Sarah E. Hill and it's your brain on birth control I think is the name of the book yeah and one of the things that I took away from reading that book was the way that the pill influences estrogen it doesn't just have that influence on the menstrual cycle it affects the whole body yeah so like I said like estrogen um, has a role to play with our cognitive health so that's one of the working theories why potentially being on the pill might influence someone's mental health yes yeah yeah I am red I think it was a bit of a trend was it like last year or the year before there was a bit of content out there about women who chose their partners when they were on birth control and then went off birth control control and didn't feel the same way about them or weren't as attracted to them would that be because of the effect that that has on like your brain and lust and stuff like that or is that just a complete yeah no that's that's a true study so sarah e hill who's a phd she talks about that in the book oh cool and she also talks about another study or another observational study that was looking at dancers in america so i guess i don't know what the pc term is well, like exotic dancers or strippers and they were tracking their tips yeah and the women that were on birth control on average got less tips really? than the women that had their sort of natural menstrual cycle going. I was going to say, did the women that were when ovulating, they were ovulating more? got more? Yeah. Wow, yeah. And so cool. I guess, and this was, I, I purely know about these studies because of Sarah's book. I haven't actually gone myself and looked at the study and the sample size and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm definitely not putting hand on my heart on like (laughs) the quality of these studies, but it's it's definitely something that's been out there is that this theory that because of pheromones and um, our like hardwired nature to reproduce, and this is also very heteronormative, right? Like we're talking about like guys and gals and, but yeah, that study showed that when they were ovulating, they made more tips yeah but on average the women that had a menstrual cycle versus women that were on the pill on average made higher tips I'm gonna get this book yeah it's great I actually have it here at the clinic and I lend it I've just lent it out to a patient so we have like a little community library here so you can take books and bring them back and stuff yeah (laughs) but it's a really great book but yes she also mentions the study that you mentioned which Mm. is apparently yeah and again I haven't verified this study but my understanding of it was that divorce rates were higher or separation rates were higher in couples that they met each other when the female partner was on the pill. And it says that 
when you are, um, and I don't want to offend anyone that met their partner when they were on the pill. No, you I know? was on the pill when I met Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> I still love him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I find that really interesting. And they say that people that are on the pill tend to go for safer guys really? and looking for more like affective qualities, like yeah. emotionally secure stable. and more like financially stable. Yeah. Whereas like people that aren't on the pill, I'm laughing because I'm not on the pill. <laughs> I'm more like mm, muscles, jawline, <laughs> facial hair, you know, mm. <laughs> looking for those more like testosterone yeah. type features. So yeah, I mean, like we can have a giggle and I, I don't know like how high quality these studies yeah, were yeah, or anything like that, yeah. but it's interesting to it's think so about. It's so interesting. I love stuff like that. Well, maybe I can find the uh, study and we can pop a link to it. Yeah, in our show notes for anyone good. Who's interested. <laughs> yeah, we should definitely do that. But yeah, I guess that's all to say that estrogen affects lots of different parts of the body, not just the menstrual cycle. Yeah. But what's really interesting is that premenopausal women have a lower incidence of cardiovascular disease than males. Yeah. And it's because they think that it's because that estrogen has this like positive effect and it actually lowers LDL and raises HDL cholesterol. Yeah. So obviously estrogen is a really, really important hormone for the menstrual cycle, but yeah. it's also really important for other physiological processes, which yep. is cool. Is that the same with like osteoporosis and stuff like that as well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we won't go into it in detail, but Alzheimer's and dementia are also linked to our reproductive system. And right. there's another amazing book called The XX Brain yeah. by Dr. Lisa Mosconi. Okay. And it's all about the female brain. And yeah. if you're scrambling for a pen right now uh, to write that down, don't worry, because I'm going to pop links to all of these yeah. books uh, that Michelle's referencing. And I just ask about that. My mum won't mind me mentioning this. She's just been diagnosed with advanced osteoporosis and mm. she's only 55. Yeah, wow. So um, obviously her and I have just become quite interested in learning more about it. And she had a hysterectomy when she was 35. Yeah, okay. So I think, you know, this is stuff that we can explore further down in the pod. Like I think we're going to talk about like HRT and obviously we're going to get into menopause and all of those things as well. So yeah, absolutely. But if you follow me on Instagram, you know that I always talk about my training for my old lady body. So I am a huge fan of strength work and getting in the gym, picking up weights and really focusing on building muscle mass because I want to be a strong old lady. You know, I want to be strong now, but I want to be strong after, you know, I go through menopause as well. And the work that you do sort of in your thirties is so important for that. So I've been talking about estrogen and how it really plays this role in the body of like growth and proliferation, but progesterone is really important in that mix. So we've already kind of like hammered home the point, I hope, that progesterone is only produced after ovulation, which is why I bang on about ovulation being the main event of the menstrual cycle. And progesterone kind of like counterbalances estrogen to a certain extent as well. 
So just like I said before, like too much of a good thing can be bad. It's kind of like we need that balance of progesterone to kind of counterbalance some of those outgoing features of estrogen. And so that's why like during your luteal phase where you've got that beautiful production of progesterone, you tend to be a little bit more risk averse. Some people, I don't want to say everybody because people particularly that have something like PMDD will actually feel potentially worse during their luteal phase Mm -hmm. because of what's happening hormonally and physiologically for them. But progesterone definitely has a positive effect on the nervous system typically. So people tend to feel a little bit more calmer, more at ease during their luteal phase. But of course, that's not going to be, you know, true for everybody. Yeah. I feel like just even having that information can help you understand your mind and anxiety and maybe just like yeah, be more kind to yourself about why you feel stressed some days and then you don't feel stressed and yeah. yeah totally and use your menstrual cycle as your report card yeah so I always encourage my patients you know a lot of people come to the clinic because they're not trying to fall pregnant but they're experiencing symptoms And so I always encourage them to look for patterns in their cycle. So if they're only feeling those kind of thoughts during their luteal phase, then that's a really good sign that we should be looking into certain things. Whereas some people will feel that anxiousness around ovulation. So again, that's like another really good sign that we need to look into something else. So your body is always talking to you. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Can I just ask you a question? Cause something that you mentioned briefly, just like is stuck in my head. How does estrogen affect the urinary tract? Oh, good question. So a lot of people will get UTIs just before their period. Yes. And we've already learned that our hormones go to a baseline during your period, right? Yeah. So it's typically like a lower level of estrogen may be affecting your urinary tract, which is why people would get UTIs around their period. Yes. Because I always feel like I'm getting a UTI in the lead up to my period. Mm, And I couldn't, that's interesting. I did think it had something to do with my period because it would be one of the signs that I was getting it, but I didn't know that it was... From, from the estrogen. estrogen. Yeah, wow. typically. And again, I say typically because it could be for other reasons yeah. that we're not sure about. One of the tests that I use in clinic is a vaginal microbiome panel as well. So that's going to tell me as a clinician what's going on with your microbiome of the vagina. And then that can sometimes influence why you're having UTIs. And so we can do a whole episode on the vaginal microbiome, but that- I would love to do that. Yeah. That sounds so interesting. So you would want to be working with a practitioner who can advise on like the right probiotics to take- yeah. Um, and different protocols for different stages of your cycle and things like that. But yeah, yeah cool. essentially it's because of that drop in estrogen yeah. oftentimes. Let's <laughs> add that to our list of topics. Mm, yeah. Cool. I'm so keen. As I said last week, I'm so excited to go home and edit this because I just really want to listen again and unpack everything you've <laughs> said because there's so much good info in there. Uh, I have a few kind of rapid fire questions for you. Awesome. Let's go. All right. So first of all, can you ovulate from both ovaries in the same cycle? You can. It's not super common and it doesn't happen that often, but you can ovulate from both ovaries in the same cycle. So left and right ovary. 
And if that happened and both eggs were fertilized, yep. that would be fraternal twins. Oh, wow. Mm. That's cool. Would you get more symptoms and stuff if that happens, like typically or? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I have no idea. Hmm, yeah. I have had patients that that's happened and they've yep. had fraternal twins and I don't recall them having more symptoms at ovulation. Yep. Um, so I don't know the answer, but yeah. Well, maybe if you're one of those people, you could DM us. Yes. Next question. Can you release two eggs from one ovary? Yes, you can. But again, it's not very common and doesn't happen all that frequently. Um, and both of these situations are called hyperovulation. So right. it's when you ovulate two eggs. So you can release two eggs from one ovary. Again, it's not super common. And again, if you were to have both of those eggs fertilized, then that would be fraternal twins. I feel like twins are just like a miracle, hey? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When you hear all of this. All right. Can you ovulate more than once in a cycle? So I get asked this question all the time clinically and a lot of people will think that because they're either peeing on a stick and doing the OPK, so the ovulation predictor kits, and or they're tracking their cervical mucus. So what can sometimes happen is your body might attempt ovulation and so you've got that beautiful increase of um, cervical mucus. It looks like you're going to ovulate because of your ovulation predictor kit but then you might not actually. Oh, okay. And then your body kind of goes for round two. And so then you get all of those signs all over again, but essentially to my knowledge, you cannot ovulate more than once in a cycle. So it's not like I can ovulate on Tuesday and then the following Tuesday ovulate Ovulate again. again. Yeah, Yeah. That wouldn't happen. And that's because yeah, of a few different reasons. So you can obviously release more than one egg in a cycle, but you can't really ovulate more than once in a cycle. And if you went to ovulate, but you didn't, would that be because of like not enough estrogen or the follicles not ready? Like, Yeah. So I look at things from a Chinese medicine perspective and if you have attempted ovulation and it hasn't happened, there could be any number of reasons from a Chinese medicine lens we have like damp accumulation, which is like there might be too much fluid around the ovaries from a TCM perspective, or there might be some impairment in the flow of qi. So yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer the question from a Western medicine lens, yeah, but yeah. from a TCM perspective, there can be a few different reasons why. Yeah. Wow. So this one you kind of covered a little bit before, but can you ovulate while you're on the pill? So nowadays there's lots of different pills. So I think once upon a time you could say the pill and it was just like everyone knew was kind of like that combined contraceptive pill where it's got the estrogen mimicking and progesterone mimicking drugs, but the estrogen, like the combined pill will stop you, but the mini pill may keep you from ovulating but a lot of people will continue to ovulate when they're on the mini pill. Yep. So the mini pill is the progestin only birth control pill. Yep. That's typically where you'll um, you'll see that ovulation can still occur. Yeah, yeah. I was on that last year and I continued to ovulate the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so the way that it works for contraception has a different mechanism of action. Yep. So some pills, their mechanism of action for contraception is by eliminating ovulation yeah and the mini pill works in a different way yeah I also bled every single day that I was on that Uh, for like a year bugger so it was not it for me not a fun time (laughs) no so last question what happens to the follicles that were recruited during the follicular phase but didn't become that magical dominant one yeah so they go through a process called atresia which is essentially they die 
and okay. your body reabsorbs them. So right. the human body is so efficient. Yeah. Um, and so we only get rid of what we don't need. Mm-hmm. We're like recycling, I don't know, queens. So <laughs> the process of atresia, your body will like reabsorb what it wants and then everything else will just get excreted. Wow. Mm, yeah. So it's called atresia, but really it's, they just, they just getting rid of what they don't yeah, need. So, uh, to wrap things up today, we're going to leave you with a little segment. Michelle is going to drop some random facts on us. And I love stuff like this because it's always fun to bring out something in a dinner party or totally catching up with friends. And I know this one is like a crowd pleaser because I said it to my group of girlfriends and they were all like, oh my God, it makes so much sense. (laughs) So our basal metabolic rate fluctuates throughout the menstrual cycle. And so it is typically quite low when we're bleeding, when we're menstruating. And this study that I found, it showed that one week before ovulation, it's at its lowest and then it steadily increases as we get closer to our next period. Yeah. And so I know that like after I'm on my period, sometimes I'm on my period, I'm like not hungry at all. Yeah, yeah. And then like during that ovulation, like during the follicular phase and lead up to ovulation, I'm just like, I'm eating lighter, like just kind of like naturally I'm eating lighter. Yeah. Before, like the week before my period, I am so hungry. And it's because your metabolic rate increases. And typically when you have a higher metabolic rate, you'll get hungrier. So that's my random fact for the week. And I think it makes so much sense to me. And yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Right. Like a week out from my period, I can, yeah. Eat a a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Eat a horse. Yes. Oh, last time I had my period, I remember the week leading up to it. And I was blaming it on the swimming and like the training for the triathlon, but I was eating like two sandwiches, like full on sandwiches as well. And then still being hungry afterwards. Yeah. And I think just like having this information means that you can make different choices for your body at different parts of the cycle. So like, I know that I'll just increase my protein during my luteal phase because I know that's what my body needs. Yeah. 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 So Michelle and I were just having a little chat off air and we've got some really fun segment ideas coming up. So have a little bit of a think about some questions that you've maybe had pop into your head during this episode or even some period myths you've heard since you're a kid that you want Michelle to bust or we're even going to get into some embarrassing stories so if you're keen to share hit us up (laughs) in the dms I think everybody has an embarrassing period story and I really want to hear them I want to hear them too and it (laughs) makes everyone feel better when you know people have been through the same thing as you yeah totally yeah and on my roadcaster pro I can change your voice so you can be be totally anon (laughs) yeah you show yours and then I'll show mine (laughs) we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we can't wait to bring you more educational info and amazing stories so as we are a new pod we would absolutely love it if you could share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it if you'd like to leave us a review you can do so on apple podcasts or leave us five stars on spotify if you're loving it otherwise feel free to share us to your stories to get the word out there and this is your reminder that you are interesting funny and beautiful period (laughs) bye guys yeah